Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. Team Canada is making a splash at the Tokyo Olympics. We recap what's happened so far. What is the economic impact of hosting the Olympic Games? Is it even worth it? Andrew Zimbalist is an economics professor at Smith College, and he joins us with the details. And now that vaccines are widely available across the country, some employers might be looking only to hire vaccinated staff. Is it right for workplaces to require vaccination as a condition of employment? employment the bill kelly podcast starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml what a way to start off maggie mcneil has won canada's first gold medal of the 2020 tokyo olympics she finished first in the women's 100 meter butterfly in a time of 59.59 seconds the 21 year old london native became canada's first multi-medalist in tokyo she won silver over the weekend with the women's 4x100 freestyle relay team in the first day of the finals, alongside Penny Alexiak, Kayla Sanchez, and Rebecca Smith. Joining us now, Olympic champion Maggie McNeil. Maggie, how does it feel to be an Olympic champ? Oh, my God. I don't know if I have the words for it. It's definitely an incredible, incredible feeling, and just hearing the national anthem play was unbelievable. When do you think it's going to sink in? At the end of the next quad. <laughs> That's hilarious. Definitely not anytime soon. Your reaction was priceless at the end of the race after you realized you had won, basically an OMG. Uh, how would you describe your feelings when you saw your name beside number one? I guess just as you said it, OMG, I mean, it's kind of hard to put something like that into words. Um, but it was just something I never thought would happen. I mean, I've always, everyone's always dreamed about that kind of moment, but it's definitely not something I thought would actually happen. Did uh, real life live up to the dream? Oh, for sure. I mean, yes, the, the stands are empty and my family wasn't here, but I knew they were supporting me from home and I haven't really had a chance to talk to them yet. So hopefully sometime tonight, now that they're awake, I'll call them. What do you think they're going to say? I I don't know. There'll be some crying, probably. <laughs> uh, this is your second medal of the Games. Uh, you grabbed a, a silver in the women's 4x100 freestyle relay uh, on the first day of the swimming uh, event with uh, Penny Alexiak, Kayla Sanchez, Rebecca Smith. How did that performance from you and, and, and that silver medal kind of spur you on to the gold? Yeah, I think I definitely wanted to carry the momentum through. I mean, that's definitely how the women did so well in Rio. They got the medal on the first day, and it kind of just snowballed from there. So I just remember watching that, and I definitely wanted to get in on that action this year. So I'm, I think I accomplished that goal, and hopefully we can keep the ball rolling from here. We're chatting with newly crowned Olympic champion Maggie McNeil. Take us through your final 50 meters. That was an enthralling finish. Yeah, I did not realize how close it was. I mean, I could see the one by my name because it was written in red, and without my glasses, I could see that a lot easier. Um, but it wasn't until at least an hour or two later that I realized how close the race actually was. Um, but at the last of two meters, I kind of just put my head down. I don't know how many strokes I took without breathing, but I knew that was something I wanted to work on from prelims and semis. So I'm glad I did that. Um, and I think that definitely helped me get to the wall as fast as I could. You mentioned no fans in the stands, but your swimming teammates were there. How cool was that? It was so cool. I mean, I could hear them cheering. Uh, definitely made up for the lack of atmosphere, but it's something that we were prepared to deal with, and I think that we've done the best that we can in this situation. 
As the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child. Who's helped you on your journey to becoming an Olympic champ? Oh, I think everyone that I've ever met in my swimming career, from coaches to former teammates to my family, just everyone's been part of the process, and I wouldn't be here without any of them. And your your training had to be tweaked because you couldn't go to the States where you normally train to get ready for the Olympics. Talk about that. Oh, I just think it was just such a challenge trying to figure out when I could come back to Canada and quarantine and changing up my training so early to the games was a big stress for me, but it definitely worked out for the best. And I meshed really well with the team here, thanks to Ben and Ryan and some in Canada. So that was better than I could have imagined. Talk about your thoughts and feelings as you're grabbing that gold medal and putting it on your neck. Well, my first thought was, this is kind of weird, but okay. Uh, so that's definitely something we're going to remember for a long time. It was definitely a different vibe than the relay medals yesterday where we could kind of give each other them. Um, but it was definitely an interesting moment, but it definitely signifies the times that we're living in. It's a unique experience from this game. Yeah, you talked about giving each other the medals uh, after the 4x100 freestyle relay. That was pretty cool because other athletes weren't doing that. Was that pre-planned or was that a spur-of-the-moment thing? It was pre-planned maybe one or two minutes before we went out there. Um, they told us that we had to take our own medals and put them on, and we were like, why don't we just give them to each other? So we thought that was kind of a cool touch. I mean, the Aussies kind of copied us afterwards, but um, we definitely started that trend. Yeah, that was very cool. We're in discussion with Maggie McNeil, Olympic champion. On the broadcast last night, it was mentioned that you've memorized the entire periodic table. So if I asked you what is AU, your answer would be? Gold. (laughs) Maggie, congratulations. Phenomenal performance. um, And best of luck throughout the entire Olympic Games. And who knows, we might see you in four years' time or three years' time with uh, more medals around your neck. Thanks for joining us. And again, congratulations. Thank you so much. Yes, periodic table AU gold and a golden moment for Maggie McNeil winning the women's 100-meter butterfly at the Tokyo Olympics. Phenomenal achievement. A senior at University of Michigan, also a two-time NCAA champion in freestyle and butterfly. Also won the world championship in the butterfly at the 2019 Worlds. The Canadian swim team certainly setting the pace for our country at the Olympics. And uh, this individual was part of a huge Olympic medal haul in 2016 at Rio. Her name is Sandrine Mainville, a bronze medal winner in the 4 by 100 meter women's relay in Rio, and joins us now. Sandrine, how are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. What a wondrous weekend it has been for Canadian swimmers in Tokyo. What's your reaction to the two medals that have come in? Oh my God. Well, the first medal, the silver medal in the 4 by 100 meter freestyle, I was just so excited, to be honest. At mid-race, I, I didn't know if we had a chance to win a medal. But I think um, I think that's part of uh, what makes the relay so exciting is that it depends on the strategy of each country, um, depending on uh, who are who they're going to put first or last. Is it going to be their fir- their, their fastest um, girls in first or last? So for Canada, it was pretty um, consistent for the whole uh, the whole race, and then we finished very strong with Penny. And so it was really nice to watch that we really came back. For, I think we were fifth or sixth at mid-race, and then we touched second. So it was really exciting to watch. And then that gold medal in the 100-meter uh, butterfly, sorry, 
I mean, it was just so, so exciting. And I'm just so happy for Maggie to be able to do that again, to win a gold medal after her gold in, uh, at World Champs in 2019. It just proves that it wasn't chance back then, so I'm really happy for her. Canada has suddenly become, maybe not suddenly, but over the last number of years, has really become a powerhouse in swimming. What, what's going on? Why is it working? Um, well, I think the main, I think the main reason is really, I think the um, National Centre in Toronto plays a big part in this success. Uh, ben Titri, the coach there, has really has a really um, interesting coaching style. He's doing something dif- uh, different, definitely. Um, he has an eye for uh, success for those girls when they're young, and he's able to see um, potential really early in their career. So he's going to take them early on in their career. He's going to um, be able to uh, apply a training style early on in their career, so they're going to be able to be fast early in their career. So I think it it shows with Summer McIntosh in the 400-meter freestyle uh, yesterday. She did a personal best at her first Olympics, uh, Canadian record. So usually when you see um, someone so young at their first Olympics, um, it, they're really there just for, I mean, experience mostly. Um, but for her to be able to swim fast at her first Olympics, I, really, I think it proved that she was ready. And so um, I think it's, it's just that whole chemistry with the female uh, team at the Olympics. It re- it's really nice to watch. You swam with uh, Penny Alexiak as well as Taylor Ruck in Rio at the 2016 Games. Um, what makes Penny so great? She's already won five <laughs> Olympic medals in her career, well on her way to becoming the most decorated Canadian Olympian ever. She needs one more to tie the all-time record. Why is she so good? Uh, that's a really good question. I think uh, in 2016, she uh, she was an uh, underdog. Uh, she Nobody knew her. She came out of uh, nowhere. Uh, I think even her, she didn't know that she was going to do that, obviously. I think she surprised herself. She surprised the world. Um, but I think she had that advantage that nobody knew her and she had nothing to lose. And so, obviously, it's not the same thing um, as Tokyo because now she has that kind of additional pressure because she won four medals in Rio. But I think she's doing a really great job um, with that pressure. Uh, and we've seen that already she's won two medals. Um, sorry, one medal, and she's uh, she's on her way to win more at the, those games. So I think she really worked hard in those past five years to um, to work on her confidence, her experience. She's not the same Penny that we saw in 2016. She's a different Penny, um, but I think she's done a really great job in the past five years to really be able to uh, recreate her success uh, that she made in Rio. We're chatting with Sandrine Mainville. She's a bronze medalist in the 4 by 100 meter women's relay at the 2016 Olympics in Rio. Listening to the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill. Um, you're no stranger to winning at the Olympics. As I mentioned, you're a bronze medalist. What memories do you have of that race? Um, I, I think my biggest memory was definitely um, the uh, last 300 meter uh, that I was able to watch uh, from the, the day because I, I was the first uh, relay swimmer, so I was the first 100 meter. So I had the chance to watch um, the three girls going one after the other and just me standing on the pool deck, uh, just hoping that we were going to um, win a medal. And definitely Penny, her last 
50 meter. Uh, she was swimming against the Netherlands, Ranumi Kromoi Jojo. And back then she was, I don't, I remember Ranumi was, a, she's a legend. I mean, she, she had world records back then. She was really um, something to be scared of. And Penny was able to um, swim faster than her and touch the water in front of Ranomi in the Netherlands. So I think that moment, I didn't even realize that we won a medal. For me, just to be at the Olympics was already a great success. So to win a medal was just, um, you know, a bonus. So I was really, I was really uh, excited to win a medal, but also to win a medal with those girls. It was a phenomenal moment, more phenomenal moments uh, over the weekend. When an athlete, uh, whether it's you know a, a team sport, uh, a relay team, Maggie McNeil, an individual winner, when, when there's a victory uh, among Team Canada, what does that do for the team? Does that reverberate across the entire Olympic Village in, in, in Team Canada? Oh, definitely. I think the first few days are really crucial for the success of Team Canada for the rest of the games because... Um, we know that even when the games start, there's still some athletes uh, back home in Canada who, who train, who uh, well, definitely now with COVID, they get to the village at the very last minute. So to be able to watch this success uh, in their own preparation uh, leading up to their race, I think it really plays a big part. So um, it, it kind of like shows that a medal is something that they can achieve themselves and definitely for swimming. Um, you remember maybe in 2016 that women uh, didn't win a, a medal in 20 years. I think the last one was in 1996. Uh, not only we won one at the, on the first day, but then five more uh, happened. So I think it really created a, a momentum, a chemistry um, uh, in, the, in the team that uh, I think the girls finally realized that uh, a medal was something that they could achieve. So uh, it plays a big part, definitely. How how cool is it that swimming is really early on in the Olympics? You're not having to wait a few days or a week to begin your event. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's always been like that. Uh, but I, uh, to be honest, I think swimmers uh, can adapt to anything. So I'm pretty sure that even if swimming was the last uh, event in the Olympics, we we would be able to take advantage of that. I mean, we take advantage of everything we can. Um, but uh, at the same time, it's nice to start. It's nice to usually when you're at the Olympics, you start and then you just enjoy the rest of the games. You're able to watch other sports right now. I think it's not going to be possible, but um, it's nice that we start and we can set the tone for the rest of the of the game. Last question for you. Where are you in your athletic career? What's next for you? Um, so for me, I retired in 2018. Um, after after Rio, I I did another year. I, I went to World Champs in 2017, but then I retired um, after that. But now I'm a, I'm a lawyer at uh, Border Lawyer Gervais in Montreal. Um, I I still swim for fun, um, but uh, definitely when I watch the Olympics, I'm a bit nostalgic. Um, I don't miss training, but I definitely miss uh, competing. Um, there's still some girls on the team that I, I, I trained with, I went to, I, I, I raced with, I won medal with. So it's, uh, it's a bit, I'm a bit nostalgic, but I'm really excited for them. Well, you'll always have your bronze medal. You'll always have the memories of Rio, and uh, so will all of Canada in, in watching that race and the races that have happened since. Sandrine, thank you very much for the time today. 
Thank you. Sandrine Mainville is a bronze medalist in the 4x100 meter women's relay at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, giving us a sense of how amazing it has been over the last 24, 48 hours for not only Canadian swimmers, but Team Canada in Tokyo and Canadian fans from around the world watching and cheering on some of our best athletes at these games. And it's not just the Canadian women who are doing well in Tokyo. The men's 4x100 freestyle relay team actually broke the Canadian record in their event. They ended up finishing fourth, which is just so close, obviously, to the podium in Tokyo. But nonetheless, a fantastic achievement. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hosting the Olympic Games. There are billions upon billions of dollars spent in building infrastructure, stadia, uh, venues, coordinating things, volunteers, security, you know, the, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. The price tag is monumental. I think Tokyo organizers spent, I think, I think the figure is $15 billion. And whether you believe those reports or not, I mean, we're talking some heavy cash. The sad thing about it, though, is that hosting the Olympics doesn't necessarily translate into economic development for that host nation. Joining us now is Andrew Zimbalist. He's an economics professor at Smith College and author of Circus Maximus. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm not too bad. You study the financial impact of major sporting events. What have your studies concluded? Uh, <laughs> well, generally... Um, mega sporting events don't promote economic development for a city. Um, and, and the Olympics is a case in point and a rather dramatic one. You, you cited a figure that, that they released to the public for Tokyo, which is $15.2 billion. The actual numbers are, are more than double that. And that's, that's, I say that based upon Japanese government audits. They did an audit back in 2018 um, so this was three years ago, at be- before they had finished a lot of the, the different constructions. Uh, and that audit back in 2018 said that they had already spent $28 billion. Um, and, so the, I, I, and, and we, know, we know from additional information that's come out of the Tokyo Organizing Committee that they spent at least $3 billion due to the postponement of the games. Uh, so the actual price tag is probably closer to $35 billion. And on top of that, they have a state of emergency in Tokyo and a few other prefectures nearby. And the state of emergency means that bars and restaurants and other entertainment venues have to close down. So that's an additional hit on the economy. So it's a very expensive proposition. On one side, we're looking at $35 billion plus in cost. On the other side, you have some revenues coming in and maybe they'll, maybe they'll reach $4.5 billion. But that's not a very good economic investment, is it? Uh, you, you invest $35 billion and you get 4 or $5 billion back. Uh, on top of that, there's a lot of, a lot of social disruption. There's a lot of uh, environmental waste, unnecessary expenditures. Uh, there's the, the fact that many of the venues will stay in place, and the reason those venues didn't exist before is because there wasn't enough demand to support them economically. Uh, now we're going to have those venues taking up scarce urban real estate, uh, uh, tens and tens of hectares of scarce urban real estate, uh, and you have to maintain those venues as well. As well, so the costs go on and on. And um, the IOC likes to promote hosting the games as something that will put your city on the map. 
But um, really, if you look at the cities that have hosted the Olympic Games, including Tokyo, those cities are on the map. And any, anybody who had a desire to, to trade or to invest in or to travel to Tokyo knew about Tokyo well before they decided to host the Games this year. So really, the return on investment is non-existent. In, in fact, it's a minus, <laughs> a big one. I, there, there, there are a couple of cases historically <clears throat> due to a, a slew of very special circumstances, I think, where you can argue that the games were either economically neutral or economically positive. But th- again, that, those, those were special cases and unusual cases. The, the general experience is that it's an economic minus. Yeah. So w- which ones have done it right or, or at least have benefited <clears throat> economically? Well, I think probably the the case that I would point to as the most interesting and most successful is is the Barcelona Summer Games in 1992. Uh, after, after Franco died in, in 1975, and he had been he had been the head of Spain for uh, for almost four decades, um, Franco had neglected the northeast, the Catalonia area of Spain, and. And Barcelona suffered from that neglect. And in fact, Barcelona had developed a manufacturing and warehousing district that they put along the sea, and it closed the city off to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and when Franco died and the city started to have democratic planning meetings meetings, and to, uh, and to rethink what they wanted their city to look like and to be, um, they decided that they were going to move the warehousing and manufacturing area off of the sea so they could open the city to the sea. And they're going to also change some of the transportation routes. They decided that in the late 70s and early 80s, and they started changing the city. As they were doing that, they decided it would help their reconfiguration of the city to have the games, to host the games, and and put the venues in places that would facilitate the reorganization of the transportation in the city. So what happened in, in brief in Barcelona is they they planned the the development of the city in a way that accommodated and was facilitated by the hosting of the Olympic Games. What happens in all of the other cases is different. The city decides it's going to host the games, and then the IOC tells the city, here's where I want to have the 40 venues, uh, and here's where I want you to have the transportation routes, and so on. So the city has to contort itself in order to accommodate the games. Rather than the city using the games, uh, in the typical case, the IOC uses the city. Uh, and so Barcelona was able to turn that dynamic inside out and, and use it to its advantage. The other thing about Barcelona, of course, and, and your, your listeners who have gone there will know this, is that it's a marvelous city that was essentially undiscovered prior to 1992. It's great, great architecture. It's a wonderful climate. It's a beautiful city. It's on, it's on the sea. Uh, and, and, and once it got the promotion that it got from hosting the games, and because it had opened the central part of the city to the sea, it, it benefited from that. And uh, so the, the bars, it, it, it had problems as well, but I think over, overwhelmingly, uh, you could you can make the argument that this this was a positive experience for Barcelona. Funny you mentioned Barcelona. I was listening to an interview on Global's Morning Show Friday, and they were interviewing Mark Tewksbury, who won a gold medal at the Barcelona Games, and he said yeah. the Olympic Village, which they built right along the 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 the, the beach, has become yeah. maybe the most economically uh, lucrative. Um, uh, I guess, spate of condos or, or, or however they're using them, but luxury uh, homes for people in Barcelona. So that's a, a great example of a successful Games, both as an athletic event and you know, a post-athletic event. 
yeah, that's, I, I think that 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 argument is is valid. It's such a solid solid argument. The um, uh, by the way, we're chatting with Andrew Zimbalist. He is a economics professor at Smith College, author of Circus Maximus. Here on the Bill Kelly Show, nine eighty CFPL London, nine hundred CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill. You Google, you know, Olympic uh, Olympic venues uh, abandoned uh, or anything to that effect, and you get a whole host of them, including ones just from the Athens Olympics and even the Rio Olympics five years ago. I mean, a lot of those venues are just you wouldn't look at those pictures and think, wow, they host an Olympic Games. They're in absolute tatters. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and as I said earlier, they 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 take up uh, dozens of of hectares of scarce and valuable urban real estate, and they have to be maintained. Uh, but you, you have, for instance, uh, the uh, Olympic Stadium that, that was built in Rio, the Maracanã Stadium that was had to be rebuilt for hosting the Games. Uh, it, it has no economically viable use now. The, the London Stadium from, from 2012, it's being used by the West Ham Soccer Club in the English Premier League, uh, but th- they play about 30 games a year there. Uh, that and of course there are 365 days in the year. It's not a very, it's not a very viable use for a stadium that ends up costing over a billion dollars once the changes were made to to accommodate the soccer team. Uh, so you, what you get is these venues that are either not utilized at all, as is the case in most of the the Athens venues, or they're way underutilized and they cost a lot of money to maintain uh, and are are precluding other uses of of the land. So is it a case of bad planning at all, or are host cities basically handcuffed in terms of what they are and are not allowed to do? Well, it's, it's mostly it's bad planning. Um, the, the general pattern is, is that the construction industry goes to the politicians and, and says, we want this to happen, and then they hire a consulting company to uh, talk about how it's going to be a marvelous event for the city. The construction industry, of course, does want it to happen because it creates billions of dollars of contracts for them. And they'll get the construction trade unions to go along with them, and they might get an investment bank that's going to float the loans for, uh, float the bonds to finance all of the construction and the lawyers who work with them. So they put together a coalition of economic interests, private interests, uh, and that, that that coalition pushes the politicians to support it, and 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 you're on the, you're on your way. That's very different than somebody sitting down in in a democratically uh, ordered planning meeting and and say, let's think about what we want our city to be, what we want our city to look like, what does our city need. Um, it's it's re- reversing the normal process or the proper process for uh, economic construction in an urban area. Do you get the sense that cities that have hosted Olympic Games in the past, be it summer or winter, uh, should be the ones that continually bid for these games because they already have the infrastructure there? Uh, Well, some cities have the infrastructure there, but the IOC usually wants shiny new facilities. And and the Olympic Village normally gets turned over to, to condos uh, so you can't you can't simply kick the people out and have the Olympic Village available to you. Uh, same thing with the Media Village. Um, so it's 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 very hard for uh, a city to simply flick a switch and say, okay, we can do it again. They have to do a lot more construction, uh, and and also you we have over time the Olympics have grown and grown. More and more sports are needed. So for the first time uh, in Olympic history in, in Tokyo, they have over 40 sporting sporting venues. Um, 
So to some extent, yes, it's easier if a city has hosted them before, but it doesn't make it economically viable to do it because there's still an enormous amount to be done. Now, Los Angeles, which hosted the game successfully in 84, uh, is, I think, going to have a successful experience in 28 because here we're talking about a city that uh, has has all of the U.S. sports teams. In some, in some of the leagues, it has two teams, not one. It has U, UCLA and USC, which are massive sport universities, and so they have facilities. They have all the sporting facilities they need. Uh, they have the urban urban infrastructure they need, transportation, telecommunications, hospitality. Uh, so they can get away with doing it at a very low cost, and I think it would be successful for them. But most cities aren't in circum- are not in a circumstance like that. Los Angeles, by the way, also because because of UCLA and, and their modern and large expansive dormitories, they don't need to build an Olympic Village. They've got one right there, and, and in July and August, the students aren't there, so the athletes can use, use the dormitories at UCLA. That, that's a very unusual situation. Do you see sometime down the road cities pushing back against the IOC in terms of, you know, new venues that are needed or how an Olympic Village is constructed just to keep those costs down? Well, the cities are pushing back, and the main way they're pushing back right now is by saying we don't want to do it. Right. The, ga- the games that are happening in Beijing in February, uh, th- there were, there were an hour, a year and a half before the, the selection was made, there were seven cities bidding, five European cities. All five of the European cities dropped out. So when the IOC had to make its choice in in 2015 or 2000 and, yeah 2015, they only had a choice between Almaty, Kazakhstan, and and Beijing, China. That's a, that's a terrible choice because the IOC likes to say that it promotes human rights, and these are two countries that that suppress human rights in the extreme. Uh, and a similar thing happened in 24. There were five cities that dropped out, European cities that dropped out in the bidding to host the games in, in 2024. So that's the main way cities are saying we don't like the deal anymore. And the IOC is trying to make some accommodations on the margins, making itself a little bit more flexible uh, so that cities, again, will start to bid. And most most recently what the IOC did is they said, we're going to put all the bidding behind closed doors. We're not going to have it public anymore because the IOC doesn't like getting embarrassed by cities snubbing it. Last question for you. With Tokyo, you know, no fans due to the pandemic, delayed for a while. You mentioned the price tag is well, well north of $30 billion. Could this be the worst games in terms of the financial impact? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think you, you, could, you could point to uh, Sochi, the 2014 Winter Games, where the, where the price tag was somewhere between $50 billion and $65 billion. Uh, you can point to Beijing in 2008, where the price tag was north of, of $40 billion. Uh, so there, there are a lot of bad stories out there. Um, it, Tokyo is certainly one of them, but I'm not sure it's the worst. Well, we'll be watching nonetheless, but uh, obviously we won't be yeah. paying the price tag. Tokyo will have to foot that bill. Um, Andrew, yes. thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Andrew Zimbalist is an economics professor at Smith College, also the author of Circus Maximus, and has been studying the financial impact, as you can tell by the interview, of major sporting events. And, you know, the interesting thing is that the price tag has gone up and up and up, billions upon billions of dollars. And that's just for, you know, venues, building things, not factoring in, as I mentioned, security or volunteers. If there were fans in the stands, there'd be a lot more volunteers, obviously directing them where to go or uh, ticket takers, all that kind of stuff. A lot of that is not needed in Tokyo. So they're saving a, 
a wee bit of money, but man, they are spending a boatload. And the TV numbers in terms of ratings, hmm. You know, if, if it's not a hit, certainly in America, where a lot of the sponsors traditionally are coming from, it's uh, not going to be that financial, you know, home run, if you will. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Can employers require prospective employees to be vaccinated? A.K.A. you apply for a job, you have not received a COVID-19 vaccine, you have no plans to get one for whatever reason. Can the place where you are applying to say, no, thanks, we'll go in a different direction. Patrick Stepanian is a legal manager for Peninsula Canada and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Patrick, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you, Rick? Not too bad. So can employers say thanks, but no thanks? You don't get uh, you don't have a jab. You don't get the job. That is something they can do. Right. As as an employer, you can set uh, policies uh, and the conditions for your workplace and for the employment. Uh, And so that is something that you can do up front with clear information and, and clear reasoning is essentially say, you know, no jab, no job. And we need proof of that. So in that respect, can employers now go to their current employees and say, you got to get vaccinated or else you're on the outs? Uh, so the short answer is uh, yes, but it's, it ends up being a bit more of a complicated uh, conversation uh, than that. So in terms of their current employees, uh, they have to start this conversation if they haven't already. And they have to sort of start exploring what the avenues are uh, for either figuring out, you know, workplace accommodations and ensuring that anybody that does need an accommodation, you know, who may have, let's say, a good reason, such as uh, something that's protected uh, human rights protection, such as medical or religious, you know, you start exploring the accommodations. um, But you can eventually end up at a point where, you know, if someone is just not cooperating at all, that, uh, you know, you've set a a place, you've set the condition of employment, you set the workplace, you know what needs to be done to keep it safe for everybody. And that uh, this person's not uh, not helping. So employers right now should be having this conversation with their staff. And would the conversation basically be, uh, listen, by whatever date it is, by Labor Day, uh, you have to get vaccinated or else we're going to have to you know, make some tweaks. Is that generally what's happening right now? That that is that is generally uh, a way to approach it. Uh, I mean, Labor Day is still about a month or so away. Right. <laughs> Um, and, of course, the return of, of kids to school or whatever it is that Mr. Ford plans. Uh, but that is generally how those conversations go. It's essentially, they start developing these policies and saying, this is what we're implementing. And this means that, in fact, by this date, please uh, try and get vaccinated. And if not, then we need to have some conversations on the side here. I guess one of those conversations, if it is allowable or if it is conducive to what the operation is, can employers force unvaccinated employees, if they can't get the shot or or even don't want to get the shot, can they say, listen, you are now working from home until you get vaccinated? So, yeah, I mean, that's one accommodation that can be made is, is with, with, these, with these employees is, you know, working from home. And it depends on the workplace, depends on the nature of the work. But that is an accommodation that uh, that can and should be explored. Um, in fact, it's probably something that's been, frankly, happening even before the pandemic for some employers of just moving people to home offices, if you will.
We're chatting with Patrick Stepani, and he's a legal manager for Peninsula Canada here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick, in for Bill. If there are certain circumstances where an existing employee is told, listen, if you're not going to get a vaccination, you're going to be gone, uh, what kind of recourse do they have, or do they have any recourse? So this is, uh, this, uh, again, this is a... a, a <laughs> I mean, at that point, when the employer takes that sort of stance, you know, you've arrived, arrived at a sort of a conflict or an impasse, and it, it does become a, a sort of case-by-case basis, uh, depending on the employee and what the facts of the situation are. Um, but the employer essentially will have to start looking at, you know, either suspending them until they can figure something out, or really even dismissal, you know, provide proof of vaccination on pain of dismissal. Again, these, this is in, in situations where, you know, an employee... Is not does not have a, a protected uh, a ground or, or reason for uh, for not wanting to get va- vaccinated. From a privacy standpoint, does an employer even have the right to ask of its employees whether they're vaccinated or not? So, in terms of asking, yes, that's they they you can ask questions. <laughs> Generally speaking, you can ask a, a just about anything. Whether the employee has to answer or or, or not, uh, that's up to them. Uh, but those are choices that come with consequences at the end of the day. Uh, however, having said that, employers have to be very careful when they're asking these questions because you don't want to force an employee who has a protected ground uh, to feel like they have to disclose something that they don't really have to disclose about, you know, another medical condition or something like that. So how should employees or employers, um, uh, I guess, execute this plan? So generally our, our advice here at Peninsula Canada starts uh, with, I guess you can call it sort of an education campaign, uh, sort of a, a teamwork, education-friendly outreach. That's that's generally how you want to start these conversations because at the end of the day, uh, health and safety in the workplace, you know, the employer has a big responsibility, but the employees have to comply. And so there's a bit of a teamwork aspect. Everybody get on the same page to make sure that we have a safe workplace. So that's sort of the starting point, and that's what we generally encourage as a starting point. Um, as things escalate, that becomes a bit more of a, a difficult, again, case-by-case question, qu- uh, sort of questioning, you know, figuring out what the facts are, how people are behaving, whether they're just not complying anymore, not being part of the team anymore. And, and at that point, that's, again, that's not something I can give you an, ex- an exact example at this point. Do you expect to see a rise in discrimination cases, in layoffs because of this? Are we, is this uh, just the tip of the iceberg here? Um, yeah, I, I would. I mean, I think part of this it sort of depends on how the rest of the summer goes with with the vaccination campaigns. I mean, the uptake seems to be pretty good, but we might be getting into the last fifteen or twenty percent that where where we might see that sort of uptake, that sort of sudden you know spike uh, in these conflicts work, uh, in the workplace. Um, I'm sure some have tried or will be trying discrimination issues, uh, discrimination claims. Um, but that, yeah, that would not be unexpected. Do we expect any employers or businesses to say, hey, no, to publicly say we're only hiring vaccinated people? I, I, I mean, it's going to be that's sort of an employer business decision. I, I suspect that you can, uh, you know, you will be sort of providing that information when you make, you know, put a job posting out saying, you know, due to the nature of the work and in compliance with health and safety, we require proof of vaccination for all prospective employees. Um, so I can see that becoming part of, of, of job announcements or, or, you know, the initial HR interviews, if you will, the first round of interviews. Um, but whether it becomes sort of a, a big public announcement, it might be more of a, a business or employer side decision. 
Um, but if you get enough uh, employers or big businesses all on that one side, all on that boat, and just making that sort of a blanket, uh, this is how it's going to be from now on. It's, it's a possibility. I can see, you know, the cruise industry, for an example. We know that you can't get on a cruise line now unless you're vaccinated. I would imagine that, you know, the staff have to be fully vaccinated as well. So there are some there are some segments of, of industry that are going to, you know, rely heavily on this. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I don't, to me, that makes sense <laughs> on a personal level. I mean, if I'm looking at whatever my industry is, you know, if, if you know, a bunch of people on a cruise ship or, you know, food processing plants or long-term care homes, uh, that's definitely going to be sort of one of those upfront conditions. You need to be vaccinated and you have to provide proof. Uh, otherwise, we can't risk, we can't put that risk in our workplaces, whether for our, you know, co-workers and employees or the clients and customers and patients. There is a risk that the unvaccinated become, you know, a marginalized entity within our society. It's, uh, that's, <laughs> there is a risk of that. Uh, time will tell how that plays out. Um I, I mean, I can't really predict that, but I mean, it's, I think I feel like I'm saying this a lot but uh, to other people, but you know, choices have consequences. Yeah. Good choices, good consequences. Bad choices, bad consequences. And just because you're free to do something doesn't mean that you're free from the consequences of that. So if there's a, a, a company boss, a CEO who's listening to this program, or even someone who's looking for a job and they're kind of on the fence and whether to get vaccinated or not, what advice do you have for both of those sides? Well, in general, uh, I mean, I've got my, I've got both my shots. So, in, in general, uh, everybody should be going out, getting their vaccines, and, and, and getting on with it, getting on with life. Um, and if you're hesitant about it, there's lots of resources, uh, you know, to learn more about the vaccines from reputable sources. Um, and if you're, uh, you know, an employer, uh, it's if you haven't, if you haven't started, uh, it's it is long past time to start looking at. Uh, implementing a vaccination policy and getting that sort of education campaign out there with your current employees and for future employees and and getting that implemented and starting those conversations uh, now uh, because you don't want to be springing. When you you spring something on someone, that's when they tend to sort of have the, you know, a bad reaction and you want to make sure that everybody's on the same boat coming along together at the same pace. Yeah, certainly communication is key in this respect. Patrick, really appreciate the time today and thanks for sharing some insight on this. Thank you, and have a good day. You too. Patrick Stepanian is a legal manager for Peninsula Canada, talking about, you know what, if you're a prospective uh, employee, you're looking for a job, or you are currently employed, there could be some ramifications if you are not vaccinated. Certainly there's going to be companies out there who are only going to want to hire vaccinated individuals. And it's, it's just a fact. I mean, think about a... Uh, I don't know, a local coffee shop or or a restaurant. You know, there's interaction between customers and uh, company employees. And I think that company as a whole wants to project that their place is a safe place. Not only a safe place in terms of COVID-19 restrictions, social distancing and masking and the like, but hey, our staff are also fully vaccinated. So the chance of you or anyone else getting COVID-19 is still there, albeit it is extremely Minuscule. I referenced earlier on the Minnesota Vikings of the National Football League um, basically dismissing one of their assistant coaches for refusing to get a COVID-19 vaccination. Basically, days after the NFL said, you know, teams could forfeit games if there's an outbreak on their team. So if you have an assistant coach or a player who's not vaccinated and suddenly you have, I don't know, 
5, 10, 15 players who are out in a particular week for a game. You have to now forfeit that game. That could cost you know that team uh, playoff revenue, some jobs down the line. So NFL teams are taking this extremely seriously, obviously. There is the other side of the equation as well. Cole Beasley, a member of the Buffalo Bills, who is uh, maybe one of the most public uh, athletes out there, or athletes to go public to say, I'm, I'm just not getting the shot. I'm against vaccines. And so a lot of fans are saying, well, this player, you know, Buffalo's going to have to cut this guy, right? Well, he's saying he's one of the best slot backs in the league, and, you know, Buffalo doesn't dare cut him. And there's, and not only that, there's other players on the team who don't have a big a voice because they don't have as prominent a role who are on his side, and he's speaking for them as well. You know, the, the coach in Minnesota that I was referring to, Rick Dennison, imagine it was Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes, two, you know, Super Bowl MVP winning quarterbacks, or it's, you know, Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid, two uh, uh, of the best players in hockey, or it's Jeff Bezos at Amazon. I mean, He's got his own company, so he can do what he wants. But if you have prominent individuals who are saying, no, I'm not going to get vaccinated, do you turf them? Would the Kansas City Chiefs say, Patrick Mahomes, you're out? Would the presidents or would a, would a, would a company with a you know a high-profile president or CEO or whatever the case is, a, a prominent individual say, you're gone because we can't afford to infect other people? I don't know. might be a different scenario. Maybe not, but it might be. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.